Hi everyone, welcome to Psychedelic Conversations. This is your hub for engaging in deep conversations around serotonergic hallucinogens that alter perceptions, affect cognitive processes, induce mystical and spiritual experiences. Enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Psychedelic Conversations podcast. I have a very special guest for you guys today, Dr. Ben Malcolm from Costa Rica. So welcome, Dr. Ben, and it's such a pleasure to have you here. And I have so many things lined up to learn from you, and I'm sure our audience is going to love what they're going to hear today. So welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's it's really great to be here. Amazing. So just a quick background and a context to you, to our audience about you. And let me just put that there. So Dr. Ben Malcolm earned his bachelor's degree in pharmacology at the University of California at Santa Barbara prior to his master's in public health and doctorate of pharmacy uh, at uh, Toro University, California. He then completed postgraduate residencies in acute care and Scripps Mercy Hospitals, hospital and psychiatric pharmacy at the University of California at San Diego. So your bio is so long, Ben, like I'm going to add it to the notes because you are so qualified in in what you share and what you offer. And I, I recently come across your work through social media and I was just blown away how solid your background and your, um, how qualified you are to be sharing what you're sharing. And this is quite exciting um, simply because now with the you know, growing of the social media platforms and also the um, advancement in psychedelic renaissance, you know, uh, people are there's there's so much floating around on social media and everywhere on internet there's so much is uh, floating around you know sometimes they are not accurate information there's so much misinformation out there and I think this is going to be very valuable for our audiences to hear it from firsthand from you and and your work and your offering as well we'll go into that in a bit so um Let's talk about your, your story, because this is traditionally what we do here. First of all, uh, tell us where you are joining us from. And, you know, we'll get into your passion in a minute, but also just a bit of your story. What made you come into this work? Yeah, so I actually had a passion for psychoactive substances as a, as a teenager. And it really began mostly as a um, just a curiosity watching reality TV shows around addiction. And I was just sort of fascinated that why would, you know, some people give up their, their lives, their homes, their families, their jobs, 
you know, to pursue the use of, of certain types of substances. And then was just fascinated too, by the fact that the behavioral pattern of addiction is possible, even when the substances that lead there have almost physically opposite effects, things like cocaine or amphetamine, staying up all night versus things like, you know, opioids that are, you know, highly sedative and people are like nodding off essentially. And, you know, through just sort of searching different types of addictive psychoactive substances on, on the internet, I should really just say illicit psychoactive substances, it came across arrowid.org and started reading just anecdotes about different types of substances or people were taking and the psychedelics, particularly psilocybin and MDMA really struck me as very, very different is the patterns of people were using them and the types of outcomes and effects that, that they were having them having. And, um, it just made me like exp experientially sort of curious. So I, you know, tried these two around the age of 18 years old and just had really wonderful types of experiences. I will say that in a lot of ways, they inspired me to study pharmacology in, in undergraduate. I was sort of just thinking, well, you know, what do I want to study? And I was like, well, I've already been looking into these things just out of my own level of curiosity. There was also something about pharmacology that was a little more multidisciplinary than other types of majors in the biology department there. And then I could take some courses in the psychology department or in the chemistry department, and they would count towards the major, which was in the, in the biology department. And, you know, after that, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I was a competitive swimmer in undergraduate. I had no uh, lab experience and I couldn't really see myself doing lab work. I liked talking with people too much, wasn't into pipetting so much and decided to go to pharmacy school, mostly because I was just looking at the curriculum and thinking, well, geez, this is the kind of like knowledge that I, that I want to have like this, like, you know, if I'm going to continue studying, it's like, I really enjoyed studying pharmacology and moving towards you know, a more uh, clinical degree in, in pharmacy sounds like a, like a, a good move. And, uh, you know, after that I did, as you mentioned, the first year residency in the hospital and, you know, I found hospital pharmacy, you know, interesting in the complexity of the types of like illnesses and medications that people were taking. But again, couldn't really, I couldn't envision myself doing it in, in the long run. And about halfway through that year, I decided I was going to do the second year residency in psychiatric pharmacy, that this is going to qualify me for an entry-level position in academia. And then I was going to use this academic platform or, or position to uh, study psychedelics. And, you know, at this point it had been pretty much 10 years since I'd done with, with undergraduate and the research scene around psychedelics had really heated up to the point where it's kind of like, I could envision a career trajectory in that where it's like, I couldn't really do that when I was done with, with undergraduate. So it was a pretty long and sort of circuitous educational path overall, but it was kind of like, well, at the, at the end of the day, what's the most interesting thing to me is the thing that kind of inspired me at the beginning of the day. And at this point, I can uh, really see that, that I should do something with it. Uh, I started the website that I'm you know, currently doing right now. I don't work as an academic pharmacist anymore. I'm purely a psychopharmacology consultant through spiritpharmacist.com. But I started that website um, mostly because of what you're talking about, as far as seeing lots of different misinformation in various like forums or places that people were talking about psychedelics and social media. 
And I always felt like it was more powerful to, you know, write some type of blog or a definitive, like, well, I, I don't know, definitive is the right word there, but, but uh, like a, an evidence-based as much as I could statement about the different potential of interactions with, with psychedelic substances and psychotropic medications and, and put that out there in the world rather than just arguing with the person that you'll never win with in the social media forum uh, all day long. Around the same time, you know, I was doing research at the, at the university um, and was working with a, a, a psychologist and getting some data from an Ibogaine clinic in, in Mexico. And, uh, the, you know, he just started having questions around, well, what about this person and their medications? What about that person and their medications? And then it became, well, I also have friends that have similar questions. And pretty soon I was getting so many messages from different places that it was hard to keep track of. And a lot of the times the messages I was getting, I really didn't have enough information to, to give good answers. So I decided to you know, start a consultation service around, around this type of idea that people are taking existing medications, specifically psychiatric ones, because that's what I specialize in. That's what I'm board certified in. However, you know, really just all sorts of medications for, for medical illnesses and what their compatibility may be with different um, psychedelics. So maybe that was like more, more than a nutshell in my, in my story, but yeah, at, at this point, that's kind of like how I got to be, you know, a psychopharmacology consultant at spirit pharmacist. Yeah. Mm, thank you so much for sharing. Yes. Now we have a really good understanding and, and your background and your passion in coming to this work. So your website, spiritpharmacist.com. I've never seen any website that offers so much value and and there's so much we can learn um i'm going to probably direct anybody who is you know have these conflicting um misconceptions around um tapering antidepressants to really understanding the drug um interaction contra contraindications and all of these things um you know, this is such a valuable uh, offer, you know, you are offering. And um, why Spirit Pharmacist? So this is also, the name is also very catchy yeah. and it just kind of works really well, I'm sure, with the, uh, yeah. aligned with the work. Yeah, so, I don't know, a couple different reasons, kind of like interrelated types of reasons, I think, is like, one is that, you know, in studying pharmacy, it was apparent that there are, lots of drugs that just work on purely physical or physiologic types of parameters, antihypertensives, you've got anti-diabetic agents. They're just meant to drive down blood pressure or balance uh, blood sugar levels. You know, you have psychotropic medications that are supposed to work on sort of an emotional or affective type of basis. You have cognitive types of things, things for ADHD, or maybe some of the anti-dementia types of, of medications, but there's really no class of drug that at least is recognized in the practice of pharmacy that works on spiritual types of, of levels. And it was kind of apparent, particularly, well, from anthropologic history over, you know, thousands of years, but also, you know, through, you know, um, more rigorous clinical experiments recently through, through Johns Hopkins, that this mystical experience was a big component of the effects of psychedelics and it's an inherently a spiritual type of uh, experience you know a lot of the serotonergic psychedelics work by stimulating serotonin receptors and specifically serotonin 2a receptors and so there was also sort of a 
an idea that science and spirituality was a bit of an oil and water type of mixture and they just don't go together or are men very well. And I always just found that like, well, this seems like there's a biological construct or potential biological construct to spiritual experience or spiritual feelings that people may have through this, through the, you know, serotonergic um, uh, nervous system. So mostly spirit pharmacy because of like those types of reasons, but I'll say like also like my sort of philosophy to, to mental health, like overall in that many people try lots of different psychiatric medications and feel like, well, some of them provide some benefits. Some of them didn't work. Some of them, are, some of them had side effects. And at the end of the day, oftentimes they feel like oh, I'm just some kind of like guinea pig here. And nobody knows really like what the right answer is for me. And geez, like, I wish I could just be like matched with some type of like algorithm that would like, let me know exactly what medication I need to, to get better or, or feel better. And I'll say that well, psychedelics are perhaps not too much different in that regard is that there's many different types out there and some tend to work better for other people than others for whatever reasons. But the kind of crux or the different part of it, again, is that they deliver experiences with high levels of personal meaning and kind of a sacred type of feeling around it. And it's kind of like, well, you know, what is, you know, psychiatry could mean mind, you know, psyche could mean mind or could mean soul. So a lot of times, like, like a psychiatrist is like a brain doctor that just balances neurotransmitters. But originally when the, when the uh, profession of psychiatry was conceived, you could also think of them as, as soul doctors. So the idea of like spirit pharmacy or like spiritual pharmacy is that, you know, I'm not really sure what is going to make every single person happy. You know, I'm not really sure what's going to bring them joy or peace in their lives. But I believe that somewhere inside of themselves, they have those kinds of answers. And if there were a class of drugs that were going to be revealing to those answers and to help them find the path that they need to, to heal or, or become well, that psychedelics would probably be some of the, the front runners. So that's why I named Spirit Pharmacist, Spirit Pharmacist. Mm, it's great. It's so catchy. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah, thank you for explaining uh, the difference. And um, I like the definition of psychotropic um, substances, the way you define them. And um, one of the things that we are continually uh, seeing um, on these forums and community uh, groups uh, about psychedelic substances is that um, people, um, there are, I think, from my observation, uh, they're finding it very difficult to make uh, differentiate the you know the 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 medicines the ssris the antidepressants the things that they have been using to alleviate depression cope with anxiety and other kind of symptoms um they almost see almost uh psychedelic substances the same so they expect a similar you know benefits they expect uh to take something to to get rid of something you know get rid of my depression or alleviate my depression or make me feel good make me feel happier you know um uplift my mood um how do you feel about um as you said the psychedelic substances are more revealing therefore maybe it can open up 
airspace or open up something that they could really work within themselves, which I think in the West we struggle to understand this. How, how, what are your feelings on that? Does that make sense? Yeah, like one of my, one of my feelings about how they sort of work differently, I guess, or work similarly, yeah. maybe. Yeah, and also how yeah. do we, how do we, uh, how do we um, educate this part of the conditioning in the West? You know, seeing seeing the meds as you know means to take something out, like means to get rid of something. For example, anxiety, but then sometimes. Uh, do you do you also see that psychedelic substances can amplify and reveal these symptoms or even amplify these symptoms so that maybe they can start to to look within and question what are the root causes yeah instead, instead of just taking a medication to get rid of the anxiety but rather work with the root cause yeah so so a little bit of both really i think like the like I, I think it's fairly well known in psychiatry that medications like SSRI antidepressants or benzodiazepines for anxiety conditions don't necessarily offer curative types of benefits. I think that most people really, at least that are practicing, understand that the, the idea behind using them is going to be to reduce symptoms and therefore increase their, their functionality. And I don't really have any particular beef against that. Um, I think that they tend to like do that by um, dialing down levels of emotional sensitivity. So helping people uh, tolerate inherently difficult types of, of situations or, or circumstances, but not necessarily being agents that really inspire much in the way of, of changing lifestyles or like changing uh, behavioral patterns. In some ways, I do think psychedelics can be used and are oftentimes used in similar ways as far as there's a neurochemical benefit as far as an antidepressant effect or uh, a reduction in craving for alcohol, uh, things like that. So in some ways, yeah, they reduce symptoms and that tends to, to increase functionality. I think that the idea behind psychedelic assisted therapy, though, is that we're going to do some deeper work around the illness and that we're going to kind of get to what is it, is it that, is that this sort of ideologic root of this for you and do some healing or unearthing or perhaps emotional catharsis and bigger types of experiences. And that's going to provide something different as far as, you know, lasting or persistent types of durations of, of benefit afterwards that don't involve continued use of psychedelics, at least not continued use on a daily basis, like you would use for, for psychotropic types of, of medications. And overall, it's kind of like, how are we going to get this emotional catharsis? So it's like, well, we're never going to get an emotional catharsis by reducing the levels of emotional sensitivity, there's going to be essentially a need to dial up that thing. So a lot of um, research around psychedelics focuses on reductions in default mode network or liberation of bottom up content, like content from the limbic system, uh, more emotional types of, of, of content and how 
um, that tends to produce like lasting benefits for, for, for people. So it does seem like they work in, in slightly different types of ways in some regards and similar ways in, in others. And, you know, there's a lot of like talk about, well, you know, psychedelics are mindfulness enhancers, right? And I think this is sort of controversial within like Buddhist communities or persons with like, you know, deep meditation practices sometimes because the idea of like all the answers being within are that all the answers are within. So to grasp upon something in the external world, an externality like a drug or a substance, it, it, there's a, a little bit of a, is that really how you find the, the way in? And, you know, maybe that's up for the, the person to decide for, for themselves. But, I, you know, I tend to think that, yeah, it can be one, one path of many in for sort of amplifying these internal uh, emotional states. And I guess I'll say, you know, that, that um, oftentimes in psychedelic communities and psychedelic conversations, there's a really strong and like heavy bias towards these emotional amplifying effects being very, very good and not really having like any type of risk to them. And the converse being that the, that the psychotropic medications or the psychiatric medications are just these sort of zombifying, you know, poisons that are pushed by the drug industry and, and uh, th those types of, of narratives. I kind of tend to feel like there's sort of a place for everything in the world. And yeah, sure. My work is focused mostly around transitioning people from the traditional world of psychiatric medications to uh, psychedelics, but that's because they're coming to me and saying like, I'm dismayed by the outcomes that I've had with these, where if, you know, persons are coming to me and saying like, Hey, these things are working really well for me. And, you know, sure. It'd be nice to do some spiritual exploration, but there's nothing really like broken with these, you know, medications that I'm taking. And we tend to like, not try to like push them to, to taper off of absolutely everything uh, all the time. And I guess to kind of like finish that thought there, there may be um, states where people are too emotionally open or their, you know, emotions are, um, you know, hypersensitized in a way that if they're living in a culture or an environment that is inherently toxic, then maybe being extremely open and hypersensitive to emotion can actually, you know, make life challenging in, in certain ways. Um, so, I think those are sort of like my diff my my thoughts on like how that how they work and yeah you know, there's there's no bad drugs out there there's just bad ways to to use drugs that's a mm -hmm. that's a Dennis McQuint, Dennis McKenna quote that I always really loved and repeat quite often mm. yeah that's beautiful thanks thanks for sharing that um, yeah you know I do understand the bias that you you're presenting to us in the communities. Like you said, some are strongly against SSRI. Some are strongly against, you know, having emotions or not having emotions. There's so many people with different ideas around these substances. And um, I, I did have a conversation with another uh, psych, you know, someone in the um, mental health, and she also said the same thing: we should never throw everything out just because, you know, we now discovered these uh, psychedelic substances because. Um, those, those meds also provided some sort of comfort, some sort of, they were, you know, if they are used properly, 
uh, they were there to um, help people go through some yeah. processes. So I, I understand that for sure. It could be that people just need different things at different stages too. You know, it's not uncommon that I hear something like, you know what, back seven or eight years ago when I was going through this horrific divorce and I was in this toxic work environment, I started something like Prozac and it got me out of my crisis. It didn't fix me. Right. It didn't like bring about this sort of like, well, now I'm completely happy with everything in my life. But I really give it a lot of credit for stabilizing me at a time where my life was extremely unstable and I was just not in a very good position overall. Now it's been several years and I'm questioning what kind of benefit that it's really providing. I'm in another relationship that is stable and, you know, overall, I'm pretty satisfied with that. I've switched careers or positions in my work. And, you know, I'm not really in that toxic environment anymore. And I'm feeling, you know, called to a deeper level of transformation. I've started some type of meditation or yogic practice, and I'm just getting more into spirituality. And that's actually how I heard about psychedelics. So I'm curious now about what the next sort of like phase for me is. So it may not be that there's just sort of one type of drug that's a solution for everyone. And it may be that the trajectory of life and its ups and downs just call for different things at different times. And yeah, it's not an uncommon story that I get. Yeah. Mm, that's, a, that's a great approach. That's a very mature approach to, to look at these substances. Um, so is that the kind of, people uh you get that they they want to learn how to now try something else and they want to be able to taper down so so can we say that there is an issue in um stopping ssris and antidepressants uh, going cold turkey so there, yeah, there has yeah, to think... be a process involved and this is where you come in right you, yeah. you, you tell them how to uh, go through the process of uh, tapering it down. Yeah. Yeah. So antidepressants like SSRIs for a long period of time in psychiatry were not really recognized as having difficult or challenging withdrawal symptoms to them at all. And I will say that in the last few years, this attitude is like sort of shifted a little bit where there is now like a recognition that, well, yeah, these things can cause like pretty severe types of physical dependencies and withdrawal syndromes in some people and that the average rates of taper, you know, if I was going to the prescribing information or, you know, uh, a prescribing guideline for depression from the American Psychiatric Association, it may something say something like taper slowly by reducing the dose 25% every four to seven days which is kind of, okay, that means that they're pretty much going to be off of the substance within two to four weeks. And sometimes people are coming from the FDA's maximum dose, and they've been doing that for uh, a number of years. There's also just a wide variety and sensitivity that people have to withdrawal and dose reductions. And stopping them abruptly oftentimes does cause you know, either severe types of psychological things, like all the way to like, like you know, PAG attacks, like severe insomnia, suicidal uh, ideation, or, 
you know, neurologic types of things as far as like fatigue, lethargy, like brain zap types of or electric chalk type of sensations, like paresthesias in their in their limbs. So, um, and the number of long-term antidepressant users just kind of keeps creeping up and increasing and increasing along with depression and anxiety. So maybe that's a cultural phenomenon. Maybe we're entering uh, a world that is very plagued with existential worries and some of that depression and anxiety is going to be a natural response of humanity to those types of, of, of threats. But it seems that there is a physical dependence to these things. And many people that you talk to, it's kind of like, why are you taking this? Is it helpful? And they're kind of like, no, I'm not really sure, or I can't really tell if it's helping me, but my gosh, every time I try to step down, I just get whacked with a withdrawal syndrome that I'm, I'm too afraid to, to stop this thing. And at least in the US, over half of antidepressants are prescribed from primary care physicians, which may not feel like they have the confidence or skill sets to really emotionally support people through withdrawal and like taper processes. I think that there's big issues with the doses that are available from the companies themselves is that they might be fine dose increases for titrating people up, but when people are coming down or off of them, oftentimes they may need much smaller increments or, or dose decreases than what is commercially available. Um, and all of these things eventually just make people feel stuck with them. And they end up taking them for years and years, despite not really having significant benefits, almost like some kind of vitamin that they just can't really um, get, get off of. Yeah, yeah, this is such a valid point. So now, uh, since the um, interest is growing in exploring these psychedelic substances, um, there's also this growing concern about not mixing those two together and now we know that it could it could be is it true that it could be fatal um there are lots of conversations around uh, um serotonin syndrome um you know so many things have been talked about that can really cause a lot of health issues or it can be fatal at times when it's mixed yeah. So, so if you're talking about ayahuasca that has monoamine oxidase inhibitors in it, or maybe ibogaine that has cardiotoxicity and relies on a liver enzyme CYP2D6, which a lot of the antidepressants block, then I do think that there are like severe risks either of cardiotoxicity with ibogaine or serotonin toxicity or serotonin syndrome with SSRIs or, or SNRIs. If you're talking about MDMA or psilocybin though, no, I don't really think that there's at least at standard types of, of doses, the types of doses they're using in clinical trials of, of pure substances. I don't think there really is this risk of, of serotonin toxicity. And I guess to explain serotonin toxicity to me is characterized by myoclonic seizures, severe hyperthermia. So it'd be at least one or two, one or three, one or four Fahrenheit, which, which is about, you know, 40 degrees centigrade, as far as a, a fever is concerned, um, you know, fluctuating blood pressures and, and heart rates and changes in mental status. Well, you know, now, okay, so that's a life-threatening toxidrome, but what does serotonergic side effects look like? Well, even just starting antidepressants, 
things like nausea, diarrhea, increased anxiety, sometimes panic, insomnia. These things are not that uncommon. And then I already touched upon what the sort of backside of, of tapering or those sorts of like withdrawal effects could, could look like. And then what does an average psilocybin experience look like? Okay, well, maybe there is dilated pupils. Maybe there is physical and emotional discomfort that can be paranoia or panic. There's definitely going to be this sometimes big shift in, in mental status involved. So I think it's like pretty easy to, to see that, well, you know, people that are in withdrawal states that take psilocybin and feel an amplified level of withdrawal, or maybe people that are already experiencing some level of serotonergic side effects that then take a serotonergic substance like psilocybin could feel that that was amplified but without the seizures or hyperthermia, there's no way that you could really say that they had serotonin toxicity. Whereas if they then go to the internet and start searching and do the sort of WebMD thing, then they're going to be like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I had serotonin syndrome. I had serotonin toxicity. They start reporting these things in forums. And then all of a sudden it becomes like, well, these things should never be mixed because there's a fatal type of, of interaction. Whereas I mean, where are the cases of fatality with psilocybin? Can you show them to me? Like, are they out there? You know, the cases of seizures even are pretty slim pickings as far as, yeah, you can find some poison control data, but then it's always a question of, well, did they have epilepsy or seizures and they stopped their anti-epileptics to use psilocybin because they read somewhere that that was very dangerous to do. Um, lithium is a drug that when you mix with the serotonergic psychedelics tends to increase the, the risk of, of seizures. But as far as those SSRIs or SNRIs with MDMA or psilocybin, I think the biggest risk is going to be a, a blunted effect or, or an experience where they're not going to get those sort of highly personal, meaningful, um, or mystical types of effects. And then their experience may be more challenging overall as they experience amplified withdrawal or you know maybe some of the underlying negative emotions that the that the substances may be um, sort of reducing or the psychiatric medications may be managing for them, and then they sort of get the idea that you know that was just a uh, a really adverse effect that, that that they had overall. But you know I don't yeah I don't think that it's really a risk of a fatal serotonin toxicity no. with psilocybin. Okay. So is even MDMA really MDMA yeah. has like the type of um, it's a much more direct interaction actually, where it's like, yeah, average doses of MDMA are pretty conclusively muted when people are taking something like SSRIs or, or SNRIs. But MDMA is also the type of substance that releases other neurotransmitters like norepinephrine and dopamine. And then it may be that, well, I took one tablet of MDMA or ecstasy and nothing happened. So I decided to take three more, two more. I took another one, nothing happened. I took a third one. And all of a sudden I was having a stimulant toxicity or something like that. Cause that's the kind of drug that, yeah, if you took a five-fold overdose of MDMA, you could be in really hot water. Whereas a five-fold overdose of psilocybin would be incredibly intense psychologically, but you still really wouldn't be, um, you know, in, in uh, a physical type of danger. So so I think that, yeah, sometimes, okay, average doses, probably just muted effects, but those muted effects could tempt people to take ever larger amounts. And then the other pharmacology to MDMA as a stimulant could kind of catch up with them. 
Yeah, well, such great information. Thank you for that. Just want to track back to something you said earlier uh, about lithium. So what kind of um, meds contain lithium? Oh, lithium is just, a, so there's, there's only one medication that contains lithium and it's lithium. You know, lithium is very different than other types of medications out there because it's just a chemical element. Like it, it's not a small molecule. So we think that lithium works by modulating serotonin signaling. So it seems like those classic psychedelics are pretty safe overall, as far as they partially stimulate serotonin receptors that there's probably something about the way that lithium modulates serotonin signaling that increases the risk, but there's, you know, not, it's like, not like lithium is involved in many different types of medications. It's really just a, it's its own thing. So it seems sort of like an isolated case overall. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. So every other day, sometimes I come across people sharing about um, this whole thing about taking SSRI with psilocybin where they, they always advise each other, like, don't do that because, you know, you'll go into a shock, you're going to this serotonin syndrome or that it will be fatal, stay away. Or sometimes they say, oh, if you do that, you'll be fine, but you won't feel them. Ex uh, like you said, it will be blunted. Or, or sometimes they say you won't go into the full experience just because you're on antidepressants or something like that. So this is so common, Ben, it's crazy to just keep seeing these, um, you know, messages that really is worrying at times because I don't think anybody really knows or, or even the, so even when you research, like you said, if you're going to just go Google, you're going to come up with so many forums that just people just talking and it just gets diluted and it just turns into something else. And for that reason, I just want to mention your chart. You have this beautiful chart where they can download for free, uh, I believe, and they can just see how these, you know, substances interact with each other. And that's such a great, you know, offer. So thank you for that. That was the best thing that I got my hands on recently. So yeah, that's that really makes everything so clear and we can understand uh, and it's so simple. So thank you for that. And I'm sure we'll be able to share that with our audiences. Um, and I just want to track back to one more thing you said uh, earlier. Again, the monks, where they meditate for mindfulness, and they always say, we don't need anything from outside. Why would you want to rely on an external substance to create this mindfulness inside the inner state? I totally get that. Um, However, my background is in holistic psychotherapy and I do a lot of somatic work, body work. And one of the things that again and again we see and observe in this work is when people don't have the capacity, they cannot enter those states. Um, you know, there are physical, you, you also know this, um, there are, you know, blockages, there are, you know, so many things are happening internally in our bodies that sometimes uh, we just cannot connect to that inner healing intelligence or the um, inner creative intelligence, all of these beautiful things that humans carry. So therefore, sometimes um, we call it the cracking open moment. So if, for example, they go for an MDMA-assisted therapy or psilocybin-assisted therapy, um that's kind of gives them that 
uh, cracking open moment where now they can build on that and keep stacking through other tools, holistic tools like movement, breath work, meditation, and so on. In one of your conversation, I love what you said. Um, it's not just about you know tapering off the meds just to have that suicide experience. Even alone, tapering off requires you know whole maybe lifestyle changes, maybe nutrition. You've got to look at, and this is very aligned with the work that I do. Uh, whether it's a trauma work, whether it's uh, coming off medication, whether preparing for a you know psychedelic uh, assisted therapy. I think we need to now come to this understanding that these are all big deal. Like these are big experiences. It's a big deal, and they need to be. Um, a person needs to really understand that they're going into a big shift, big transformation. It's a big process, and I don't think it should be taken lightly. And um, yeah, and also to see it as a holistic process. That involves many things. And one of the things that I love talking about is the safe container, safe um, group processes, or maybe a really well-experienced facilitator. Somebody can, or a consultant like yourself, who can take them through the process where they feel someone's holding hand, you know. I think these are just so great uh, things to talk about right now. It is so necessary. I feel that now in this post-pandemic world, um, again, you mentioned something earlier, with so predisposition to, you know, feel lost and, and doomed and this uncertainty that's sweeping the whole world, is I think it's increasing a lot of these traumas to surface, fears, anxieties, you know, existential anxieties. And um, I think now... There's no better time to be more educated in this. And, uh, and also wanted to share one thing to get your um, perspective on. And, you know, in shamanic perspectives, uh, they say that if you go into, say, a psychedelic experience and you're not feeling anything or you're not experiencing anything, even the no experience is an experience because it's doing something that we don't understand on a very below the unconscious, maybe uh, the conscious level. And another thing that I know is that if you need to build capacity in order to really experience this mystical and oneness and this, you know, this expansion or the oceanic feelings that people talk about, right? So if there is no capacity in the person, if there's a lot of resistance to change, if they associate transformation change with like unknown and fear and everything, um, I do believe that they can block off these mystical experiences. Do you agree? What are your thoughts on that? I think that there's definitely something to the idea of psychological resistance and that it could limit the effects of the substances at times, or um, maybe even make the experience more dysphoric and challenging in some ways and that the drug wants to overwhelm them and take them to some place. And, you know, for whatever reason they can't. And I think a lot of the times when I read about this in psychedelic forums, it's always kind of like, I, I took this and it was like kind of mild and not really much happened for me. 
And then it kind of like turns back on the person. It's like, well, you must have done it wrong. You, you, you must not have been open enough. You must not have surrendered. You know, you're just so resistant. And, you know, maybe that's true or right. Maybe they had one of these guides, but the guy didn't build very much rapport or trust ahead of time, or they built rapport and trust in one location. And then they decided to have the experience in a completely different location that for whatever reason had a weird smell in it was dimly sort of like lit. Like there was something about it that caused that person to sort of feel guarded. And that really didn't have anything to do with them, um, you know, doing it wrong. Uh, I think oftentimes, right, you're coming from a world of medications where things could be reduced as far as the effects go. There's all of these horror stories out here about like serotonin toxicities and things like that. So sometimes people may tend to be rather conservative with dosing and then they get some watered down type of experience and it gets put back on them like, well, you're just sort of like resisting it, you know, particularly psilocybin it seems like there are some people that for whatever reason don't respond very well, even when medications aren't part of the picture, either because maybe the mushroom itself has a lot of like chitin and their stomach is not able to break that down, or it needs to be transformed from psilocybin to psilocin by, uh, you know, dephosphorylation type of process. And they don't have enough of that enzyme present. Um, so there, there's many different like aspects to it, or, you know, particularly like microdosing, like sometimes you read things, you know, it's sort of like, okay, I'm supposed to like take this small dose of something and my mood will be better and my anxiety will be reduced. And I took it and I couldn't really feel anything, but then I got sleepy and like took a nap. Right. Yeah. So obviously like didn't work. And then, you know, ask a bunch of questions and it turns out that, well, like I'm kind of burnt out and like a workaholic and it's like, okay, so maybe it did deliver what you needed somehow, as far as like you took a break and you actually like rested, which is something that you never, you know, kind of do. Um, you know, there's, there's one kind of uh, person that, that has been really helpful in like my, my process, like overall, and, you know, he always talks about like the, right, the, the, uh, the, the Zen master and the student and, you know, it's a, sort of like, okay, I, I took some psychedelic or I meditated and, and, you know, nothing happened. And the Zen master is like, oh, nothing happened. And they're like, yeah, nothing happened. Just nothing happened. It's like, oh, nothing happened. And it's like, yeah, nothing happened. It's like, nothing happened. Like, like your mind was completely still. Like how often does that happen that nothing happens? So lots of different reasons out there why psychedelics like may not deliver the types of effects that people think that they're going to, you know, some of them could be set and setting and environmental. Some of them may actually be that people have very, you know, perfectionist, OCD, depressive, like very rigid type of ego structures that, you know, do they want to be a different person? Do they want to feel better? Absolutely. But there's something about their psychic composition that, that may make that more difficult. Um, you know, as you say, it's like more difficult to crack that, that person like open and deliver these type of large experiences. And then also believe there may just be other reasons out there as far as 
differences in metabolism, metabolic capacity for, for substances, maybe genetic differences in the serotonin receptors themselves that render some people resistant. And, you know, I have heard stories about, oh yeah, the person that uses 300 micrograms of LSD and almost nothing happens. And then they try 15 milligrams of 5-MeO-DMT and they're kind of like, is it working yet? And you're kind of like, yeah, I don't think that that's just a person just resisting where their psyche, there's probably something else going on there. So, um, yeah, those are my thoughts is like, there's a whole lot of reasons and some of them could be sort of like psychological. And then I think there's also some probably unknown or suspected sort of like physical reasons why some people don't respond in the, in the same type of way. And Overall, I think my, my concluding thought there would be that we shouldn't be putting it back on the person that it didn't work because you did something wrong because, you know, they're trying their best and they came to the experience to try to do something for themselves and try to do something right. So to get that sort of story back that, well, you must have messed it up somehow, you know, when maybe that's their own internal thing always, it's like, I can't do anything right. And I don't know how to it just, I, I just don't see that how that can really be productive or helpful. I love that. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Yeah. So this is a very, very sensitive area, isn't it? When, I mean, this is not just something, you know, it is a big experience and it is a big deal. And, uh, and there are a lot of nuances in experiences. Like you said, taking a microdosing, expecting something, not getting it, but just falling asleep. That's a great process. That's exactly what it needed to happen, like you said, in that moment. And um, I feel like um, right now we probably lack a lot of um, capacity or the insight to understand how they are working with our own mechanisms. Um, but I think we're getting there slowly. As much as there are lots of horror stories and as much as there are lots of bad trip reports and, you know, all those crazy things out there. Uh, I do see and observe there are really great things are happening too. People are becoming more insightful. Um, we, you know, there are so many people that I know personally where they started microdosing, say, three months ago and they persevered. And although it didn't look like anything, they committed for a long enough time suddenly suddenly everything started making sense and they become they grow in self-awareness i think one of the things that um gradually happens is people you know start to become more self-aware therefore they become more insightful and now now they can they can talk about their experience and they catch those little things and catch things the patterns that they have their responses their triggers and the way they look at the world now there is this very subtle, gentle separation is happening between them and their identity and how they look at the world. So, yeah, there is also great things and positive things happening. So that's so good to mention here too. And now um, as we're coming to, towards the end of our conversation, I really want to learn more about your offerings and I'm sure our audience are really excited to learn. So please walk us through what are the things that, you are doing right now with your website with your consultation everything 
Yeah. So, so basically I will say that I offer like three things, right? Mm -hmm. And the third thing is a combination of one and two. <laughs> so the first thing is just standalone consultation. So hour long, we fill out an intake form, a review it, we do a virtual video conference, and we walk you through what medications you're taking, what your relationships to those are, what your intentions and desires are as far as like trying to taper those or not. We talk about the types of psychedelics that you may be interested in using. And some people have sort of a plan already and they want to use me as a sounding board. You know, some people it's much more like I'm just sort of reading about this and I'm not even really sure what the differences between them are and what the compatibilities with my medications is. So it's like, I'm looking for like information about what may be safe or effective for, for me to, to try. So that's, that's like the individual standalone consultation service. That's sort of like the patient or like client consultation. I also do just, you know, have consultations sometimes with, with physicians or therapists or people that may have a practice and they're getting lots of questions about it. And they just kind of want to like ask me questions for an hour or something like that. It's like another flavor. I have courses. So I have an antidepressant tapering course. It's specifically about weaning antidepressants in preparation for psychedelic therapies. There's six modules, five of the modules are about tapering antidepressants. So it's much more about tapering antidepressants than using psychedelics, but the kind of compatibility and some of the things that we've talked about in this conversation are definitely part of that last module. And it is the, the longest module. I have a psychedelic pharmacology master series and two out of three courses in that series are done. So I have the foundation, the psychedelic pharmacology, which is ba a basic neuropharmacology course that uses psychedelics as illustrative examples. And then the most recent one, I actually just put it, put it out about two weeks ago now, is psychedelic pharmacology by substance. So this goes through nine different psychedelic substances and talks about the pharmacology and kind of clinical data summaries for each of those substances independently. And the last one I'll be building in 2022, just the clinical pharmacology of psychedelics, which will be much more about, yeah, this drug interaction piece, um, you know, mental health and how psychedelics could fit with different types of, of applications and more practical types of, of things. So consultations, number one, courses, number two. And number three is the member resource and support program, which combines these things. So the member program is based upon a monthly or annual due, and you get access to all of the courses and webinars that I've done. I also have a number of written drug interaction guides around psychedelics and psychiatric medications. So it's kind of like renting an entire library worth of resources, like a, like a Netflix for psychedelic pharmacology is the kind of like idea there. But you also get discounts on uh, private constant private consulting or private consultation. So uh, if you're looking to, you know, consult with me, even a one-time basis, you know, there's only a one month commitment to the membership. It's by month. You don't have to sign up for forever and ever, right? You can do that at a discounted rate, as well as, you know, supplement it with different types of courses or webinars that you may be like interested in. So Basically, I, I created the member resource and support program because I would get some people that would buy a course and then be like, that course was wonderful, but what do I do? And then, you know, some people would do a consultation and be like, okay, that was helpful, but I wish there was some type of educational resource that supplemented this. 
And so it's kind of like, okay, well, let's put these things together in a member resource and support program. Also do email-based Q&A for, for the member resource and support program as part of like the member dues. So people just want to ask quick questions by email on an ongoing basis. So I think that, that, that um, the member program is really designed for three groups of people, really. The first would be providers, facilitators, clinicians, therapists, alternative healers that have a practice and want more support around screening and, and medications that people may be taking. Um, you know, patients or clients that are in a tapering process and or beginning their sort of journey with, with using different psychedelics that want to kind of see me on a regular basis or have me as a support for, for that process. And then I also offer a student membership at, at reduced rates. And the student membership doesn't include the support. So I don't do email-based Q&A and I don't do the discounts on private consulting, but you just want to take the courses and, you know, the entire kind of course library of webinars and read the guides. You can do that as a, as a student. Wow. There's so much value here. It's, it's incredible. Thank you for sharing. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it's very, very valuable. Right now, we all, all of us who are in this space, we need to learn more about the psychedelic pharmacology. I love that. Um, thank you for sharing. And I've got a couple more questions, if that's okay. Uh, sure. two, two popular psychedelic substances, ayahuasca and psilocybin. Uh, you already clarified that there is no risk uh, with psilocybin or toxicity or these crazy syndromes that we talk about. When it comes to ayahuasca, what are your advice um, if people are on SSRIs? What would you tell them? How long do they need? I know you don't. Really yeah, if they if they were tapering, if they were tapering SSRIs, you know, like you know, I would say you know, taper off your SSRI and probably you've been taking it a short level of time. The dose isn't that high. You're not very sensitive to withdrawal. You can plan two months for that. You've been taking it for a longer time. Your higher doses. You know, you're sensitive to withdrawal. Plan four to six months for that. And you know, there's somewhere someone that's in between there. And you probably want to wash it out for at least two weeks before using something like ayahuasca, just because of the monamine oxidase inhibitors. If you've been on high doses of Prozac, probably more like six weeks is very long acting. SSRI has a long acting metabolite to it as, as well. And that's pretty standard psychiatric advice or like information um, yeah. as far as like comparing it to like pharmaceutical monamine oxidase inhibitors. And there are some differences in the monoamine oxidase inhibitors of ayahuasca versus the pharmaceutical ones. But the kind of crux of it is that they are both really potent inhibitors of monoamine oxidase A, which is the enzyme that breaks down serotonin. So I do believe there, there is, you know, a strong interaction risk and danger mixing things like SSRIs with, with ayahuasca. Yeah. Thank you so much. Are you familiar with serine root as a, a MAOI? Yeah, 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 to some extent, yeah. 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 So how do you? It's like feel an alternative, yeah. Mm. How do you feel? I'd say about the same that? rules, like right. the same, the same sites of ideas. It's like they both have, they both have harmala alkaloids in them, and it's the harmala alkaloids that are the monamine oxidase inhibitors. So I would suggest the same types of washout periods. Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. And how do you feel about people taking, you know, lots of serine brew together mixing it with psilocybin 
oh, the idea of sort of like silo or like boosting psilocybin mm-hmm. experiences. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, again, like I think of the classic tryptamines, like psilocybin, LSD, and DMT is relatively similar in pharmacology, and particularly the psilocybin converted to psilocin. I mean, it's 4-hydroxy DMT. It's so, and the, the sort of overdose risk profile doesn't look too much different to me. So I'm kind of thinking that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a traditional type of like thing to do, right. But, you know, you're in a place that doesn't have ayahuasca vine, but Syrian rue is, is readily available and you wanted to mix it with psilocybin mushrooms. I would not predict that you're going to end up with a serotonin toxicity because of that. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thanks for sharing that. And last words from you, last uh, words of wisdom. What would you like to share with our audience? And if any call to action, if there's anything, anything you'd like to share, that would be lovely. Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'll say that, you know, just a plug for psychedelic pharmacology. I think that there's so much emphasis on the psychology and the sort of therapy processes that go along with psychedelics, like the sort of how to do the therapy around it. Whereas there seems like to be like almost like less focus on sort of like the nuts and bolts of like, what is this drug? How is it metabolized? What is the dose of it? Things like that. So I believe the psychedelic pharmacology is, is very, very important in, in all of this. And I think I would say to, to consider psychedelics to be more like a process or a path that you walk that may take some time and it may take more experiences than what you're kind of told from, from clinical trial data. I feel like there's very much a narrative out there that use psilocybin two times or MDMA three times and you will be cured and you will just be persistently better for years and years and and years and years. And um, for some people, those outcomes may be true. And I also believe that there are psychedelic experiences that occur sometimes that are just so massive the transcendental, almost like lightning strikes you change is possible. I used X grams of mushrooms. I was highly dependent on alcohol for a long time. I never touched a drink again. It's been years and years and years. And it wasn't because they did some extensive therapy intervention around that. However, for the average person, yeah, coupling it with, you know, an addiction treatment program or addiction-based psychotherapy and doing a number of sessions is probably going to be the, the, the way to go. So I think if it were up to me, I would actually call it therapy-assisted psychedelics instead of psychedelic-assisted therapy, because I think that the psychedelic is sort of driving the bus as far as the effects go. And every single one of these clinical trials you know, the, the variable has been psychedelic or placebo. And so we actually don't really understand how much support is necessary and what the support structure that's there is really doing for the person overall. To do that, you would have to run trials where people are getting, everyone's getting the active substance and you're varying 
the levels of, of support. But what the data to me demonstrates at this point is that the people that are getting the psychedelic tend to have outcomes that are two to five fold better than the people that are just getting the, the therapy alone. So the beautiful thing about psychedelics is that they are experiential and that the relationship that you ultimately have between them is between you and the substance. And particularly when there's a lot of fears and anxieties, worries, particularly when you don't know very much about them, having people that are experienced to guide you through that process can offer tons of value for you. However, the idea that you need somebody to always and perpetually hold your hand to use psychedelics, I think is inherently flawed. And if you look at the anthropologic record, isn't really how it's been done. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, you opened up another question for me here. <laughs> how do you feel about... Um, and also, by the way, I like the uh, idea of calling it the therapy-assisted psychedelic experience or the therapy. I love that. Yeah, uh, I would agree. So, and how do you feel about now, since all this social media blowing up uh, the psychedelic substances, you, we are seeing so many people coming out and, you know, now suddenly providing these uh, services. Uh so much is happening right now out there and whereas before it was all underground secret you know secretly done and and nobody was talking about now so many people are jumping on this providing psychedelic assisted therapy or therapy assisted psychedelics so what are your thoughts on that oh well in some ways you know the number of people that want this type of healing and want to use psychedelics in therapy assisted types of settings, we don't have enough therapists that are trained to do it. So in a lot of ways, we're like really vastly understaffed for the psychedelic renaissance or the reemergence of psychedelics in society to like really bloom. So the fact that there's lots of people interested in this and want to get trained in this and help people with this is probably inherently a, like a good trend. Um, I think that there are risks of people ingesting psychedelics, having a wonderful experience and thinking, well, now I need to turn everyone else onto this and I'm qualified to do this, even though I don't know how these things are metabolized or dosed or what the interaction risks are. And I have no emergency or safety procedure to it all. And I have sort of very little training um, there's also, right. The, you know, this has been a huge thing recently and in the past too, but kind of like really brought to, I think like the limelight is that, you know, psychedelics put people in extremely vulnerable places emotionally, um, or places that they can easily be manipulated. They're highly suggestible and you're maybe, you know, dealing with a population of persons that are dismayed with their treatments or mental health struggles, and they're looking for this, and there may be a level of desperation around it that kind of um, puts them in, in harm's way sometimes. And not everyone that is practicing in this underground way has good intentions or good boundaries 
um, or the ability to hold space when there's really strong transference and counter-transference dynamics happening. And, you know, there's a lot of risk for bad outcomes to occur in, in those types of environments or, or settings, you know. Psychedelics are so interesting in that they're experimental drugs as far as clinical trials go, but they're very well-known entities in society overall, which is very different than other drugs that are going through clinical trials as experimental agents. Um, so um, in some ways, the kind of the cart is ahead of the horse in that you have all of these headlines, Newsweek, the New York Times, you know, touting them as the absolute like next best thing for your mental health, which has really skyrocketed demand. And then you sort of have this roadblock or like bottleneck in people that are, are, are trained to deliver that kind of uh, modality. Um, and yeah, there, there could be some risk there. So everyone wanting to help make people feel better and to use substances safely. That sounds great to me. Right. But exactly what, what, what qualifies somebody and what does it look like? And what are the safeguards for that? That's something that is still evolving and not really that well-defined and very well could look very different for, for different people. Different people probably have very different needs in all of this. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great share. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I'm seeing so many um, nonprofit organizations are really doing great work right now around the topics that you shared, you know, what qualifies the person, uh, what are the, you know, settings should look like, what are the safety procedures, you know, harm reduction, uh, if the facilitator is well-trained, experienced, you know, what qualifies them to hold these spaces. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of progress is happening. I think, you know, there's hope. And I believe there's going to, I think we're going to need a lot of, in, you know, education information and keep learning, keep learning and never stop learning, I guess. So that's where I am at. And uh, thank you so much for all your work. Honestly, this is so valuable. Uh, I cannot wait to follow your work and uh, really um, understand a bit more of the pharmacology side. I think all of us need this. So thank you for providing that and paving the way and uh, being here, sharing it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Susan. It's been a real pleasure being part of this Psychedelic Conversations podcast. Thank you so much. And everybody, thank you so much for tuning in here and hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions, please reach out to Dr. Ben, myself, um, drop your comments below, wherever you are catching this um, podcast, whether it's audio or video. And look forward to seeing you guys again very soon. Much love. Bye for now. Thank you so much for joining us. Psychedelic Conversations podcast is designed to educate, inform and expand awareness. For more information, please head over to psychedelicconversations.com. You can also share with your friends or leave a review so that we can reach more people. You can also join us in our private Facebook group to keep the conversation going. This show is for information purposes only and it is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.